I don't know how many of you enjoy amusement parks. I love them. I have always loved them. And I have tried to instill into my children a love for amusement parks. I remember when uh, the children were small. I remember Brennan was about seven or eight years old. We decided to go to Hershey Park and to ride the rides at Hershey Park. This was before they had the height limits. And I remember Brennan being about eight years old and riding the Super Duper Looper. There was another ride, we'll see in just a few moments, that I think was called the Wildcat. And we sat, of course, if you're on a roller coaster, you know where you sit. There's only two good seats on a roller coaster. The one all the way in the front or the one all the way in the back. Two totally different experiences, but both thrilling. And I remember sitting in the front of this roller coaster, and, and Austin, uh, Austin, Brennan starts sliding out of his seat. He's kind of, and I'm grabbing on him, holding, I don't, he wouldn't have gone out, but it was just you know, one of those, uh, ah, kind of moments. When we finished the ride, of course, his response was, man, that was great. Let's do it again. We have some nieces that were not into roller coasters and things like that. And I remember taking them to one of the amusement parks. And they were freaked out on that swing that goes around. And I'm thinking, whoa. What's interesting is one of those nieces who was terrified of that ride is now a soldier in the Israeli army and carries around a, 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 an M16, and, you know, and it's like, whoa, what happened? Yeah. But when you think about amusement parks, there's sort of two levels of rides. There's the rides that you do when you're a child, and you kind of stand there as a parent going, oh, isn't that thrilling? And around and around. Now, if you're like my kids, at about the third loop around, it's like, when is this going to flip over? And then there are those that really like the wild rides, the ones that shake your bones. There was one we had at a place called Jazzland. It was down in New Orleans. And when you got off of it, you were bruised. And it was like, oh, let's do that again. Woohoo! That was fun. Now, that's amusement parks. But I was thinking this week, what's our attitude about coming to church? About reading God's word? About worshiping the Lord? About doing Bible studies? Singing choruses? I wonder if as we think about church, some of us see it like this. Kind of singing in the background, the angelic voices, but boring as can be. If you watch this ride, there's one kid that gets so bored he starts pounding on the front. You know, let's do something. That's how some of you view interacting with God's word or with the things of God. But then there's others. When you think about God's word and encountering God and, and coming to hear from him and hearing his word and having opportunity to worship, some of you see it like this. For better or for worse, 
This is the wildcat at Hershey Park. And I wonder how much of what he's saying is just like worship. Oh, yes! Oh, my! Why? Why? And I, you just hear him screaming. Now, my question is, when you come to church and you're about to be involved with God's Word, say, I told you. How do you see it? Is your involvement with God's Word in worship, like literally that first one on YouTube, was listed as the most boring amusement ride in the world? Is that how you see it? When you pick up God's word to read it, whenever you choose to do it, in the morning or in the evening or in the afternoon, whenever that time is, you want to spend time in God's word. Is it a boring time? Or is it a bone-rattling time? If you read God's word about God's word, If you read God's word about those encounters that we have with God, you find that revelation is not to be boring. It's meant to shake us up. It's meant to be a wild ride. It's meant to stir us and jar us and awaken us and cause us to respond. It really does concern me in my own life and in the life of others that so often we are involved with God's revelation and God's presence. And like on a Sunday morning, the very first thing we do is we go out, leave, turn on a radio, you know, go eat, whatever, and never take time to ask the question, what's the impact this ought to have in my life? What should this do? You see, God's revelation is meant to shake us up. And, and I'm not just talking about emotionalism. I, I get concerns time with being motivated by emotionalism. There is a place for emotion. I believe the definition of worship that you hear me use often is that it is an outward expression of an inward response. That's the emotional aspect to an encounter with God. Sometimes it breaks us and it's sadness and it's grieving and it's a sense of loss as we we look at God and we understand that as we look at the world that the world is not as it ought to be and we long for that which ought to be or we look into our lives and we see that our lives are not as we wish them to be and we long for that which ought to be or we want to be. Sometimes it is elation. Sometimes it can be anger. God, This, though, so violates your holiness. And then out of that, we respond. We react. We choose to be different or to act differently or to think differently. 
Now, we began a series that's going to take us into the summer at looking at the life of Abraham. And as you look at the life of Abraham, it is basically a question. Is Abraham responding in faith? Or is Abraham responding in faithlessness? God presents his promise. And then the question is, will Abraham live on the basis of that promise? Or in opposition to it. Though the promise is different for us, and we'll look at it in just a few moments, that same question is the foundation of our lives. In our lives, as we understand what God has said to us, what he has revealed about himself, and what he has revealed about what he calls us to do and to be, the question we have to ask is, am I responding to that in faith, in trust, in belief, in dependence? Or am I doing so in faithlessness? Saying, I believe, but living as though God didn't exist. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12, and it's the beginning of the story of Abraham as we looked at the introduction last week and we saw the, the, what happened to Terah and those that followed. And as you begin to read in Genesis chapter 12, it is one of the foundational passages of the entire Old Testament. It's where God says, out of the cursing that has taken place over the last 11 chapters, I now choose to respond to that first through a man, through a family, through a nation, and that one that came out of that nation that we know as Jesus. But it begins here. And one of the things that is so interesting is that the very way that Moses wrote this indicates to us that God's revelation requires a response. When we encounter God at whatever level it is, wherever it might be, whether it's in worship or whether it's in his word or whether it's in, you know, experiencing his creation, whatever it may be, when God reveals something about himself or something about his plan or something about his will or something about his promises, we need to respond. It should do something in us. You actually see it in the very way that Moses writes this passage. When the subject is the focus of God, in verse 1 and verse 7, it says, and the Lord. And in both of those sections, what is being revealed is revelation. The first one is the Lord spoke and revealed to Abraham. We don't know. Actually, it's Abram at this time. We don't know how he did it. We don't know what means he used. God's word doesn't tell us that. We just know that God communicated to Abram that he had a particular plan for Abram's life, a particular promise he was going to make, and that is revealed in verse 1. And then in verse 7, there's a second revelation when it says the Lord appeared, probably a theophany. You know what a theophany is? It's when God shows up in some kind of form and interacts with a human being. Some form of theophany, God showed up. When God is the subject, 
what takes place in those situations is revelation. But all the rest of the passage, Abram is the subject. And the focus is on action or response. What did Abram do? The implication, even in just the way Moses writes this passage, is that when we encounter God, however that may be, that there is a responsibility of God's people to respond to what we have come to understand about God. Is God loving? Is that what we've just come to understand? That should affect how we interact, how we interact with God. Is God gracious? I loved what, was, what we spoke about this morning with the whole sanctity of life and then the knowledge that God forgives, that God brings mercy, that God heals, that God restores. When I come to understand that, it should change the way I think about my world, about myself, about my life, about my actions. It should change how I interact with others and the mercy and the grace that I show them and the way that I can use God's grace and mercy in my life to pour into another person's life. God's revelation requires us to do something. Now, I want to make something real clear about what I'm about to say. I am about to quote someone that I do not agree with whatsoever, except in this one area. His name is Joel Olstein. I don't read Joel Olstein. I don't watch Joel Olstein. I don't agree with Joel Olstein. I believe that much of what Joel Olstein preaches is heresy, and yes, I mean that word, heresy. But there's one thing he does that the first time I saw it, I was flipping through channels and came across it, and I actually stopped. And if you knew me, that's amazing. And I remember sitting there and thinking, wow. That's powerful. When Joel Osteen is about to preach, have you ever seen him? He has everyone in his congregation take their Bible and hold it in the air. And then they say this. I am what, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. I am about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the word of God. And though this is a totally uncreative sentence. It is absolutely correct. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. As you walked in this morning, as the message began, and by the way, this is in no way trying to hold up the message as something great. It's not. 
There's much to be critical of in a message, anybody's message. But if a message speaks God's truth, no matter how unprofessional or, or you know, inarticulate, if God's truth is there, if we are in God's word, as a result of that, we should never be the same. Now, I'm not saying every time up in the word there's this incredible, you know, boom, lightning from heaven. There are times. Not literal lightning, you understand. But somehow, I should expect it to change me. Is that our attitude? Or do we walk in and interact with God's word and interact with God's revelation like that ride on that, you know, with sort of angelic voices in the background just waiting to get out? Or is it a bar, a, a bone-jarring, life-shaking, head-banging experience? What do we expect? See, in Joel Olstein's church, as much as I so much disagree with him, at least in that affirmation, there is a sense of expectancy. Something's going to change in me. Genesis 12 calls us to that and reminds us that when we encounter God's word, when we encounter God in any way that he chooses to reveal himself, it should change us. It should make a difference. For Abram, it was a promise. God says on the basis of this promise that I will fulfill Abram, I want you to do this. I want you to respond in this way. And the very first thing that happens in Abram's life is he believes. He trusts God. He says, God, in a sense, if you are real and this promise is real and I choose to believe it. And that encounter with God changed Abram's life. You see, as you begin and continue to read down through Genesis chapter 12, you understand that God's revelation of his promises requires that we trust it. When God says that he loves us unconditionally in his son and that those who have trusted Christ as their savior are loved by him, that all of the wrath of God towards our sin and our unholiness has been dealt with in Christ. And I stand before God in a right position. And now God is able to pour his love into me unrestrained by his holiness or by his perfection. 
When I read that God's word tells me that everything that enters my life is a result of his providence, is a result of his purpose in my life, and it is being used by him to mold me and to change me and to to take that clay which is my life into his hand and allow it to become what he knows I can be. Can I believe that? Will I trust that when God says, this is the way to walk, that he knows what he's talking about? God's revelation of his promises require that we believe, that we trust. And when you read down through the promise, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. There are whole theologies and there are whole articles in the journals written on this. But this is the foundational promise of the Old Testament. This is, I will choose a nation through which I will bless the entire world. And the interaction they have with the truth found in that nation will affect them to blessing or cursing. This is a promise of blessing enjoyed through trusting obedience. He was saying to Abraham, Abraham, if you trust me and you obey, you will enjoy the fullness of these promises. It's true in our lives. We need to trust that God forgives us in order to enjoy it and then live out of the basis of it. We need to trust that God knows what he's doing in our lives and trust him as he brings those things into our lives. We need to trust God that he knows the best way to respond to a situation, even when that situation goes in opposition to what our humanity assumes. That's how we enjoy the full blessing of God. Now, God's love comes through faith and trust. The availability of God's blessing in the life of the believer comes through faith and trust, but the full enjoyment of it comes through obedience. This is not salvation. Abraham is not being promised salvation. That comes through the New Testament and faith in Christ. Here, it's a promise of land and children. And when you're 75 years old and your wife is 70 years old and God is coming to you and saying, I will, I will give you a child, and then later says, and I will make you a great nation, it takes faith to believe that. My translation of Romans 4 is, as Abraham's talking, or Abraham's talking about Sarah, is she ain't no spring chicken anymore. This is a promise that Abram would never see the full completeness of. But yet he trusted. God says, I will restore this world. I will make all things right. That which you have surrendered in in service to me, I will multiply ten times. I will multiply a hundred times. But I may not see it on this side of the veil. But most importantly, this is a promise that calls forth faith. And it is that faith that leads to a right relationship with God. Nothing has changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The focus of that faith might have changed. In the Old Testament, it was believing that God would fulfill his promises. In the New Testament, it's believing that God already fulfilled his promise. 
but it is faith. And so both as the central verse in Genesis 12 through 22 and one of the central verses in Paul's writing in Romans, God says this, Abraham believed God, had faith, and it was credit to him as righteousness. It's a right standing before God, not by what he did, not by his obedience, not by all the things that he got right and could check off the boxes. In fact, when you look at Abraham's life and then becoming Abraham, you'll find a lot of boxes didn't get checked. It was his faith. I will trust your promise. The same response exists today. It's just the promise is different. What do we believe in today? That when God sent his son and he died upon the cross, that it was that sacrifice that made the availability of a right relationship with God. And because God in Christ died for me, my acceptance in trust and faith of that act, of that promise, places me in a right relationship with God. Nothing changes. The promise changed, but not the response. The second thing that we notice as we begin to read down through here is this, that God's revelation of his plan requires obedience. That whenever God provides a promise, he also provides a way to live that out. He comes to Noah and he says to Noah, I'm never going to destroy the earth again through flood. And then he says, you know what, Noah, in response to that promise, here's a way to live things out. He will come to Abram and will say to Abram, here is my promise. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And through my blessing of you and your response to that, others will be blessed. That is my promise. But here's how you have to live. To enjoy and fulfill that promise. When God came to the nation of Israel as they were making their way from Egypt into Cana and they came there to Mount Sinai and God said, I am making a covenant with you and I will come to you and I will make this promise and you will be a great nation. It is a promise of nationhood and land. God says the result of that promise is this way to live. We live under the new covenant the covenant established by Christ's blood. As we gather for communion, we say that as he took the cup, he said, this cup is the what? New covenant. And all promises of God have ways of living it out. When we understand what God is doing and he has revealed it to us, the response to that plan is to be obedience, to live God's way so that we might enjoy the fullness of that promise, the fullness of that blessing. Not so we will get it. If you want, we get it through faith. But we live it out and enjoy it through faithful obedience. 
Now, as you read through, and you read through what what Abram does, and God comes to him and says, Abram, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live out the promise at this point. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your people. I want you to leave your father's household. And I want you to go where you have no idea where I'm leading you, but I'll lead you there. Obedience allows us to fully enjoy God's blessing. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land. I will establish you. But for you to enjoy that, Abram, be faithfully obedient. Beloved, we have this amazing relationship with the God of the universe. We get to call him Abba, Dad. We get to come into his presence, unlike anybody in the Old Testament, through the blood of Jesus Christ, and come with confidence before the throne room of God. We have the privilege of being united as a new nation, a new people, a new race, from all of the nations of the world. To be God's representative, to show the world that God's kingdom is here. We get to be used by God on a daily basis to impact people's lives for eternity. Whoa. And we enjoy that through obedience. Obedience involves sacrifice. Notice what he says. You know, Abram, this is going to cost you something. He says, first of all, it's going to cost you the land. Now, to us, that doesn't mean much. To a second millennial BC person, that was their security. Everything rests in the land. Abram, it's going to cost you your people, your culture. I will ask you to live in opposition to your culture. I'm asking you to move in a different way. His culture was polytheistic. He had, they had many gods. Their view of God was that gods, the gods were capricious, and you never not quite knew what they wanted you to do, but if you sacrificed enough to them and you gave them enough, maybe they would like you, and they would do the things that you wanted them to do. And, and God comes to Abram and says, I want you to think totally different. I want you to reject those areas of your culture that move in opposition to the reality of who God is and what he is doing. He says, I want you to to walk away from your father's household. That doesn't mean that I need to be separated from my family. There are times when that may be necessary. That's not normal. But it is saying, I put God first in my obedience to him before even the closest of relationships. Obedience is going to cost you something. But the story of Abram is, it is worth it, whatever the cost. As you read down through those verses and you read about Abram's response, you understand something else, that obedience involves obstacles. Please, this is where Joel Olstein is wrong. Being a believer and living by faith doesn't mean that everything goes just wonderful. There's struggle. 
Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it looks so much easier to say, God, I'm going this way. You've got to be kidding to go that way. And you see it, again, by the way Moses sort of writes this passage, as he's, he's writing about it, you read down through it, and there are two breaks in the discourse. There are two breaks where in the midst of this story and this interaction, suddenly Moses kind of throws something in. The first one is found there in verse 4 when he's writing and he's saying, So Abraham left as the Lord had told him to, and, went, and, and Lot went with him. And then all of a sudden you got this thing thrown in. And Abram was 75 years old. Then you read about his family. He brought Lot, and he brought Sarah, who, by the way, is barren. Actually, Sarai. And the rest of those that were following him, the word probably isn't servants. It's probably the idea of those that caught his message and wanted to come along. Then there's another break that comes in, and you read down through what he did. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree and all of that. And then all of a sudden, as he's traveling in Cana, you read this verse in verse 6. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and you want to go, duh. Why does Moses do that? I think what he's showing us is that there are going to be struggles for Abram. He's going to have a baby and raise a baby when his wife is 90 years old. That's a struggle. You know, I'm so glad God didn't give me that promise. His people, Lot is going to be just a real pain. He has a lot of problems. And Cana? It won't be no picnic. It's not a proper sentence. It's not going to be easy. And then here's the last one. Obedience is uncertain of the outcome. Sometimes we believe that if we obey, that means that everything's going to come up roses. <gasps> oh, no. Beloved, sometimes it gets worse. Because God has a bigger purpose. There's a wonderful scene in, this, in the movie Courageous where a young ma- a man finally gets a job and he's been out of work for a long time and he's been very faithful at his job and suddenly his, his boss calls him in and challenges him with this. Maybe. Martinez, have a seat. Thank you, sir. Been very productive your first month here. Do good work. I'm very grateful to be here. Well, Mr. Martinez, the reason I called you in here is that I'm looking for an additional manager to oversee inventory and shipping. It carries more responsibility, but it pays more. Sound like something you might be interested in? Yes, I would. But before I make my final decision, I'd like for you to work a shift in that department next week. You'll see a list of 17 crates coming in on this sheet. Now, one of those crates will be going to a separate warehouse. Mr. Martinez, when you report the inventory, I'd like for you to report that we received 16 crates. 17 are coming in, but you want me to write down 16? Yes, that's right. I have another purpose for the extra crate. 
You are on my team, right? Because I really can't use people who aren't on my team. Tell you what. You think about it tonight and give me your answer in the morning. Make it 10 o'clock. But I'll need to know if you really want this job. Good evening, sir. You notice I don't show you the outcome. Maybe it works well. Maybe he loses the job. But what does faith look like? What does obedience look like? What does integrity and honesty look like? What does righteousness look like? What does godliness look like? What would I do? It will all come back to, do I trust God's promises? And what he says he will do? And who he says that he is? Being obedient, he might get the job. He might not. Go watch the movie. Yes, he got the job. It's a Hollywood movie. Well, not really Hollywood. But but either way, God says, will you trust me? Whether the son is born in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 25 years, will you trust me? But when you do, when you choose to live ways that God asks us to live, God reveals himself. God comes through. God will be there. When Abram does all this and leaves his father's land and leaves the land that he's used to and gets up and goes into the land of Canaan, notice what verse 7 says. I love this verse. And the Lord appeared to Abram. God will show up. God will show up. And when he does, God seeks to reveal himself personally to his people. Now, God is probably not going to provide for you a theophany. It happened like four times in all of the thousand years written in the Old Testament. But God shows up, maybe here, in his word, through a sense of his presence in your life, through the love of a friend that throws their arm around you, through the wisdom of someone who has walked in that path longer, God shows up. And we meet him personally. And when he does that, it should lead us to worship. An encounter with God that leads to an internal response that gets expressed outwardly. That's worship. For Abram, Abram worships God by praising him. And the key phrase, we're going to look at all, you can read it later. The key phrase is this, he built an altar, he built an altar, he built an altar. An altar was a place where you praised God 
probably with sacrifice, probably with declarations and and shouts and all the things that were part of the Old Testament worship. And as he went from the different cities and God continued to lead, lead him, each time he would build an altar and he would proclaim, God is here with me. The other aspect of proclamation of worship is that worship proclaims the presence and work of God. As Moses is writing this and talking about Abram, he talks about the fact that when he built the altar in verse 8, then he built an altar to the Lord, and notice what it says, and called on the name of the Lord. Bethany told us that the name used by Moses in in Exodus chapter 3 is Yahweh. You've got to put the in. But the name of the Lord is not simply a designation. It's a proclamation of his character. As Abram was building these altars, one after another, after another, it was a way to take that encounter with God that had an impact on his life and proclaim it. This is my God. And I worship him. Why do we sing on Sunday mornings? Why do, we, why do we pray? Why do we do all this stuff? It is our opportunity to proclaim the presence and the work of God. You see, when you really understand the impact of God's word, it's an e-ticket ride. Now, some of you have no idea what an e-ticket ride is. Back when Disney World started beginning, you had a coupon book. And there were certain rides that were free. Those were the boring ones. The, you know, the world of tomorrow. <laughs> then you had other tickets that were sort of, you know, the teacup and the, but the best rides. Space Mountain. Pirates of the Caribbean. They were e-ticket rides. And you only had so many of them. Beloved, when we look at God's word and we encounter him, do we expect an e-ticket ride? Because when you do, and when you respond, the response is this. Hang on. Because God's about to do something. Father, thank you for the example of Abram. We pray that we would learn by his example, that we would take what he shows us and allow it to become a part of our lives. Father, it begins by faith and trust in your son. That's where the relationship begins. As it did for Abram, it begins for us by trusting in you. We would hope that all here know that faith, that relationship. And we invite anyone that's not certain to speak to someone up here on the stage, someone to know how they can know that. Father, for those of us that are sure of that relationship, Help us to expect you to work through your word and your presence in our lives at all times. And we pray it in the name of your Son.